Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we would rather have you than anything else. We would rather have you than anyone else. You are without peer. You are exceptional. You are the only one to provide us salvation from our wretchedness and our rebellion. You're the coming king. You're the head of the church. You're Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Lord Jesus, you are the healer of our infirmities and the savior of our souls. Lord Jesus, please be magnified and please be glorified as we look to the word of God which centers on your person and your magnificence. And may we, Lord, not merely get smarter about Bible in these minutes, but instead may we see again the beauty, the uniqueness, and the total sufficiencies of you, Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, yesterday was the opening of crawfish season. And did you hear about the two guys that went out in a rented boat? And they found a spot and they started looking. Sure enough, they caught a lot of crawfish. And the, the one turned to the other and said, this is a great spot. He said, yeah, this is amazing. He said, we had a market. How should we market? Well, let's paint a red X on the bottom of the boat. The other fellow said, well, that won't work. We might not get to rent the same boat tomorrow. I don't know. They don't get any better. You might as well laugh now. (laughs) Well, I want you to listen to a quote as we come into our passage in Romans uh, 2, uh, 1 through 16. I want you to listen to a quote, and this is the quote. This administration has proved that it is utterly incapable of clearing out the corruption which has completely eroded it, reestablishing the confidence of the people in the morality and honesty of their government employees. The investigations which have been concluded to date have only scratched the surface. For every case which is exposed, there are ten which are successfully covered up, and even then this administration will go down in history as the scandal-a-day administration." It is typical of the moral standards of the administration that when they are caught red-handed with payoff money in their bank accounts, the best defense they can give us is that they won the daily double. A new class of royalty has been created in the United States, and its princes of privileges and payoffs included the racketeers who get concessions, the insiders who get favored treatment on government contracts, the influence peddlers with their leg to the White House, the government employee who uses his position to feather his nest. The great tragedy, however, is not that corruption exists, but that it is defended and condoned by the president and other high administration officials. We have had corruption defended by those in high places. If they won't recognize or admit that corruption exists, how can we expect them to clear it up? End of quote. Do you know who said that? Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon said that of the Truman administration that preceded his. 1956, Richard Nixon made those allegations and evaluations. Richard Milhouse Nixon. This is an example of Romans chapter 2, verse 1, which I would like to read with you at this time, Romans 2, 1. 
Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Just as we would properly conclude that then-Senator Nixon condemned himself when he judged then-President Truman, the Jews condemned themselves when they judged the Gentiles' failure to keep the whole law of God. Verse 1 again, Therefore you, Jews, are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, that is Gentiles, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. So here's the deal. When we look at someone else and want to judge them and point the finger at their sin, three fingers of our own are pointed right back at us. When we want to point out someone else's sin, the fact is that three of our own fingers point right back to our own sin. This sermon is titled, Three Principles of God's Judgment. And the fact was and is that Jews and Gentiles alike are unable to keep 100% of God's law 100% of the time. No one can keep all of God's law all of the time. The people being addressed in these first 16 verses of chapter 2, we might call moralists. They were Jewish moralists back then, but we have moralists in the Bahamas today. Let me define the term. A moralist is a person who picks his own standard for righteousness, usually a standard that he or she thinks that they can keep, and then they point out all the faults in someone else. The problem is that the moralist who has their own homemade standard of righteousness doesn't live up to that own, their own homemade standard of righteousness. And if you want to discourage people, if you want to bring anger upon Jesus Christ, then you come across as a moralist to someone else, and you set a standard and make everybody live up to a standard that you have dictated, and you yourself don't bother to live up to it. One thing about Donald Trump running for president is that you're never short of a good soundbite. He said something that I think made every Presbyterian quake in hearing, certainly every evangelical Presbyterian, every Bible-believing and conservative Presbyterian must have been shaking their head when the Donald said, I'm a Presbyterian, I go to church often, I just don't ever recall having to ask God for forgiveness for anything. That's a moralist. Someone who sets the bar, the standard, low enough that he thinks he can keep it, that's a moralist. That's the kind of person that the original readers of these verses, that's the kind of person these verses are speaking to. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you that you've set a standard, a homemade standard of what makes you okay, and then you look at others and you hold them to that standard, but really you don't hold yourself to that standard either. The moralist. So what we're noticing here in this these verses is that the Jew is no further ahead than the Gentile because they both were condemned before God because they both were not holy by God's measurement and as detected by God's perfect law. And so what then-Senator and soon 
than to become President Nixon proved by his own remarks that we may, may prove as moralists if we are moralists ourselves. For instance, do you hold anyone to a moral standard that you yourself do not attain to? Maybe your spouse. If she was just more loving, if she was just more of an encourager, if she just listened to me, do you love her? Do you encourage her? Do you listen to her? Or maybe your children. Children are to obey. Children are to submit. Children are just to get along with each other. And then your kids see that you don't obey the government. You don't obey the Bible. You don't submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you don't get along with the people you work with or worship with. Or maybe politicians. You know, they ought to tell the truth. Do you tell the truth? They ought to be unselfish. They ought to legislate for the Bahamians and not for themselves. Do you ever self-serve? They ought to lead well. They ought to step up and lead well. Do you step up and lead well in your spiritual responsibilities? I could go down the run. Pastors, friends here in the church family, employees, employers. Do we hold others at arm's length away from us at a certain standard that we've created that we ourselves, if the truth be known, don't live up to and not even close. There are three principles in these verses that uh, pertain and to explain God's judgment. Three principles pertaining to God's judgment in verses 2 through 16. I want to overview the three principles very quickly and then get to them one by one. The first principle, God's judgment is based on facts. That's verses 2 to 5. The second principle, God's judgment is according to deeds. Verses 6 to 10. And the last principle, 3, God's judgment is impartial. So we're going to see that God's judgment is based on facts, God's judgment is according to deeds, and God's judgment is impartial. Now let's consider principle 1 concerning God's judgment, that God's judgment is based on facts. Uh, verses 2 to 5 of our text. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the first principle, family, is that God's judgment is based on facts. I wonder, has it ever occurred to you that since God is present everywhere and since God knows everything that there is to know, Therefore, there will be no circumstantial evidence in God's court in the future. When people are brought before Jesus, there will be no need to call a witness for the judge Jesus to learn something circumstantial about the person on trial. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God judges on the facts. No character witnesses will be called to the lost person's trial at the great white throne judgment before 
Jesus the judge. And so the self-righteous person here, or by way of the internet, the self-righteous person needs to beware. I want to particularly speak to any who may be here without salvation this morning. Because God will be your ultimate judge, and because he possesses all the facts concerning you, all of the facts, you would best beware of passing over the salvation forgiveness offered you in Christ. Yes, the self-justifying, the religious individual ought to be duly warned that the first principle in our text for God's judgment is that he judges based on the facts. And so if you are my friend here this morning without Christ, please do not delude yourself to think that somehow you will escape the judgment of God, going it on your own as your own defense attorney at the great white throne judgment of Christ. It would be reckless to live rejecting Jesus in light of the fact that God judges based on facts. And so the unconverted, the the self-righteous, the I-did-it-my-way person, the Donald Trump as he stands right now, I never have had to ask for God's forgiveness for anything that I can recall. That person needs to change course and run to Christ. And so I ask the man in the pulpit, and I ask you, my friends in the pew, uh, do I go it alone? Do you? Have I to date or have you to date unwisely been unaffected by God's mercy toward us? The person who is unaffected by God's great mercy toward them in Christ is in great danger. Because failing to repent and failing to turn to Christ invites God's wrath at the future great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. And so let's look again at verses 4 and 5 of our text in Romans 2. Or do you think lightly, hear it, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is kind to the person who's not yet a Christian for a purpose. God is gentle and holds back the wrath that the person without Christ deserves for a reason. Verse 4, that it would lead that person to repentance, a sorrow for sin, a change of mind about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. That's why God is merciful and kind to the person who is not yet a Christian, that they would repent. If that's you, repent. What Impedes repentance leading to salvation? Stubbornness, verse 5. Stubbornness and an unrepentant heart. So if you have by chance taken the popular but the uh, ill-advised stance that I'll take my chances when I stand before Jesus Christ in the end, uh, I'm better than Sammy and I'm certainly better than Sally, I'll be all right. If you take that stance, you are going to be shocked everlastingly shocked because God's judgment 
is based on facts. There's more. The second principle of God's judgment is found in verses 6 to 10, and this is the principle. God's judgment is according to deeds. On the one hand, God's judgment is based on the facts. On the second hand, God's judgment is according to your deeds. Verses 6 to 10. Who, that is God, will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yes, the principle here is that God's judgment is according to our deeds. It's very clear in both the Old and the New Testaments that this is the principle of God's judgment. God's judgment is tailor-made to the individual. There are degrees of punishment in God's judgment. There is proportionality to God's judgment, both in the Old and the New Testament. A Hitler will see greater torment in hell than the person who has rejected Christ and never murdered. There are degrees of punishment in hell. If you hold your places in Romans uh, 2, please, and go with me to Revelation 20, I've been referring repeatedly to the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. Uh, Revelation 20, uh, verses 11 to 15, one of the most sobering wake-up calls of all the Bible, the great white throne judgment. This occurs just before the eternal state. This occurs after the thousand-year kingdom reign and rule of Christ called the millennium. This is a resurrection where all the unbelieving dead of all the eras of human history are standing before Jesus as judge in his courtroom. No requirement for circumstantial evidence. Jesus judging them on the facts, giving out tailor-made degrees of punishment in hell. Uh, This ought to motivate evangelism like few other passages. Ought to motivate prayer for the lost. Revelation 20, 11. And I, that's John, saw a great white throne. It was great because there's no more important and weighty a throne. It's white because the judge who sits upon it is perfectly pure and holy. And it's a throne because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne in books, were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. When the lost person stands before Judge Jesus individually, there will be books that Jesus Christ will pour over, not for his education, not for his information as judge, but to make clear that what the person is charged with is in fact what the person is guilty of. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. If I marked my Bible, I would underline according to their deeds. And the sea 
gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, here it is again, according to their deeds. I'd underline that. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The moralist often is the one who tells everybody else how to be right with God, but doesn't get right with God, him or herself. That judgment I read of is not for the believer, that's for the unbeliever. There was a time in Canada's history when there was raging brush fires sweeping across the Canadian prairie, which is very flat, and lots of wheat and different grasses are growing in that part of Canada. High winds were driving a out-of-control brush fire across Canadian provinces in the west. And people could see that the fires were not being uh, contained by firefighter effort or by the opening of uh, water planes to drop water on the fire. That It was just out of control. And the prevailing wind was pushing the fire toward a certain community. And the community leaders told all the people in the town to come with them outside of the town. And they burned a huge, scorched, a huge area of ground outside of their town. And they instructed all the mummies and the daddies, the granddaddies, the grandmummies, the babies, the children, to lie flat on the burned-off spot of ground. Why? Because they knew that as the flames that were approaching the town, the flames that would destroy, if the people would lie down on a previously burned-off spot, those flames would pass over and no one would die. The cross of Calvary is the already burned off spot where God's wrath has been poured out. And the person who runs to that Savior in faith, hopelessness, dire need, the person who runs to that Savior who's the burned off spot ahead of time and falls in worship and trust and faith at the feet of that Savior, the passing wrath of God that hell is, will pass over that believer in Jesus, and he or she will be safe. Are you in the burned-off spot? Parents can't be there for you. Your spouse can't be there for you. Are you on the already burned-off spot, Mount Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ, his shed blood? Yes, God's judgment is according to deeds. And verses 7 and 8, if you just let your eye go there, verses 7 and 8, they contrast between a redeemed life and an unredeemed life, verses 7 and 8. To those who by persevering in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, now the contrast, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So watch it here. The redeemed person, if you're saved, that's you. Our lives ought to be bringing honor and glory to God. Our lives ought to be lives that persevere in doing the good that God has led us to do day unto day. In sharp contrast, the person who is not yet saved, the unconverted life, is a life of self-ambition a life of disobedience to the truth, 
a life of being slave to unrighteousness, a life characteristically, grossly disrespectful of God Almighty. These are two different lives. And we're seeing in verses 6 to 10 of this passage that God's judgment is according to deeds. Put another way, God's future judgment for the person who never comes to Christ for salvation will be punitive, proportional, scaled, tailor-made, and will vary by degree, person to person. Verse 8 is telling us specifically what God's judgment for the lost person's sin will look like after death and resurrection at the great white throne judgment. God's judgment for unbelievers' sin will first look like wrath. See it there in verse 8? But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath. That's the Greek word orge, O-R-G-E, orge. Orge is righteous indignation anger. Orge anger is what you feel in your heart when someone beats up an old lady and steals her purse. Righteous indignation, anger, orge. People sentenced to hell at the great white throne judgment will experience Jesus Christ's orge anger. Jesus Christ, of course, displayed his orge anger while on earth when he took a whip, overturned the temples of the money changers, and drove them out of the temple. Orge, wrath. But there's another face of what the unredeemed will face by way of God's judgment according to their deeds, and it is indignation. See it there, verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Indignation is a different Greek word here. It's thumos. Thumos. It means rage. It means fury. God's thumos... God's indignation was fully poured out onto his son on the cross when he bore my sins and yours. This table remembering that great price that Jesus willingly paid. Jesus Christ took the full absorption of the indignation of God that your sins elicited. The person who doesn't run to Christ before death will face not only the wrath of Jesus Christ, but the indignation, fury of Jesus Christ. Tell others about him. Trust him yourself if you're playing games. He's the only burnt-off spot God's going to provide. The only burnt-off spot of safety. Another way to say this is there are only two possible ways to pay for sin. Either we acknowledge our sin and run to Jesus in faith and gladly allow him to substitute for us on the cross and to pay all of our sin debt to the Father for us. That's what a Christian has done. The second way To pay for your sin is to pay for it yourself forever in conscious torment in hell. Sin must be paid for. Will you let Jesus pay for yours? 
or will you go on your own and pay for it yourself forever in hell? Those are the only two options, because it has to be paid for. Now, please look back at verse 5. Verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath, orge, righteous indignation. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. As I said to you before, this is orge uh, wrath. This is Jesus' kind of wrath. Before I move off of orge wrath that God is justified to have toward our sin, we are actually, as believers in the New Testament, commanded in the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, we are commanded to have orge anger from time to time. Yes, I said that. God commands us to be angry with righteous indignation anger from time to time. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 be angry, that's the command. Be angry, orge, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Um, you may have heard this, the couple who said, when we got married, we promised each other and God that we would never uh, go to sleep angry, but there have been some nights that neither one of us has slept at all. <laughs> we are not to let the sun go down on our anger, because even righteous indignation anger, that is uh, orge anger, if left to have a longer shelf life than God intends for it, which is by sundown of the day you experience, that even orge anger can putrefy and become par orgasmas anger, which is sin. I was buying my milk by checking the date of expiry. I had a bad childhood memory with sour milk, really bad. Um, and so I checked the, the jug of milk very carefully for the expiration date on the milk. Orge anger that we're commanded to have when an old lady is mugged or a child is molested or what have you. Orge anger, which you're commanded to have, has a shelf life of the day you experience the orge anger, sundown. And if you keep that, cling to that, it will become putrefied and spoil and sour in your heart. And the next word in that passage is par orgasmas anger, which is different than orge anger. And par orgasmas anger, which festers long enough, becomes thumas anger in that passage, which is road rage, why people shoot each other at red lights in Nassau. What we're seeing, church, family, in verses 6 to 10, is that when a person rejects God's offered pardon in Christ. When a person turns down the already burnt off spot of Calvary, when a person persists in being unconverted, then that person is going to be judged by Judge Jesus according to their deeds at the great white throne judgment. I want to show you one more truth before we move off of verses 6 to 10, and it's this. That saving faith in Jesus Christ will always be accompanied by obedience to God and by good works. When you get on an airplane here in, at the Pinder International Airport, Airport, you have to have a ticket. They give you a boarding pass, and you have to have a passport. You're not getting on that plane to anywhere unless you have a passport and a boarding pass. Saving faith is accompanied always by obedience to Christ and the doing of good deeds. The doing of good deeds don't save you, but once you're really saved, they are always there. 
obedience and good deeds. See that with me in both verses 7 and 10 of our passage, please. And to those who by perseverance in doing good, there it is, in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, down to verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, there it is, does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We're saving that true saving faith in Christ will always be accompanied by obedience to God and the doing of good works. Everybody who gets on the next airplane you fly out of Pender Airport, you can know has a boarding pass and a passport. They always go together. And so when we're saved, we ought to live a thank you kind of life back to God. We ought to do what the good works he's prepared and set before us to do any given day. And that lines up with Ephesians 2.10 uh, after verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. God has prepared good works just for each one of you to do before you were even conceived, before you trusted Jesus to be your Savior. God has prepared good works beforehand that you and only you would do. Are you doing them? How do you do them? You report to duty every day to the Lord, every moment of the day. I'm available, I'm leadable, I'm teachable. What, Lord? That's how you do it. Or Romans 1.5, in the greeting to the church at Rome, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Uh, Paul wasn't just in, into seeing Gentiles converted, he was into seeing them converted and then obeying Jesus, Lord and Savior. Or in James 2.18, it's all lining up. It says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Saving faith in Jesus Christ has bedfellows called obedience to his lordship and the doing of his good works for us. person who goes long enough, claiming to be a Christian, who doesn't obey characteristically, who doesn't, isn't any interest in doing good works that God puts before him, may not be saved. Because these things go together. So we're studying Romans uh, 2.1.16. We are looking overall at three principles of God's judgment. And we've seen two of these principles so far to review. Principle one, God's judgment is based on facts. Verses 2 to 5. Second principle, God's judgment is according to deeds. Verses 6 to 10. Uh, the last verses of the passage, 11 to 16, give us the third and final principle of God's judgment this morning. You ready? God's judgment is impartial. God's judgment is impartial. God doesn't care about your balance sheet. God doesn't care about your level of education. God doesn't care about your race. God's judgment is impartial, verses 11 to 16. For there is no partiality with God. 
For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that, they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So this last point on God's judgment this morning is that God's judgment is impartial. He has no partiality. He has no favoritism as judge. Um, The person who is a sinner is a sinner no matter uh, where they come from, no matter uh, their standing in society, if you're a sinner, you're a sinner, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. Now, verse 13 is interesting, I think. For not, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Does that mean that someone can be justified by law-keeping? Well, if they could keep the law, yes, but nobody can keep the law. Only Jesus kept the law. Nobody else. Before Jesus kept all the law, nobody since Jesus Christ has kept all the law. Only Jesus kept all the law. That's why his death counted to give you righteousness. So what is this saying? But the doers of the law will be justified. I wrote in my margin, at least hypothetically. If someone could keep the law, 100% of the law, 100% of the time, I suppose they'd be justified. But nobody can. The law was given to show us that we couldn't. When I had hair, which was many years ago now, and I stood before the mirror, it only showed me my hair was messy and never fixed my hair. The law is a mirror. It tells an individual they're not measuring up to God, but it doesn't make a visual any better before God. That takes Christ. That's the hairbrush. In this analogy, Jesus is the perfect hairbrush. He's the one who, after we've seen we fall short, can make our lives right. In case you wonder about this, that no one can justify by keeping the law because no one can keep the law, flip over to chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 quickly. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, and every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Sin is the mirror to show me my hair was messy. James 2.10 also makes this very clear when it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he becomes guilty of all. God says it's an all deal. If you keep all of God's law and fall in one point within it, it might as well you've disobeyed all of it. That's why no one's justified by law-keeping. We can't keep the law, but Jesus did. Jesus kept the law. Hallelujah. So what this is saying is that apart from God's grace and Jesus' cross, unredeemed Gentiles and Jews are both going to be impartially judged by Jesus. 
The Gentiles will be judged for violations of their own conscience. That's what verses 14 to 16 of chapter 2 say. And the Jews will be judged for violations of God's revealed law in the Old Testament. But either way, those who don't believe in Christ are going to be judged impartially. And so, since conscience is a very important factory-installed characteristic of a human being by God, Satan delights in searing consciences or in trying to minimize their role in a person's life. Satan loves to lie to make people think that an active, healthy conscience is like a gallbladder. No one really needs one. In fact, you're probably better off without one. Adolf Hitler, in his writings, denied the existence of a conscience in humans. Hitler called conscience, quote, a Jewish invention, a blemish like circumcision, end quote. That's how Adolf Hitler ordered the murder of nine million plus people and still slept well at night. And so verses 14 to 16 contend that Gentiles will be judged for violations of their own consciences. But on the other hand, Jews, according to verse 12b, Jews will be judged for violations of God's revealed law that they held in their hands. Now, let's look at verses 14 and 16 as we wrap things up. For when Gentiles who do not have law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternating, alternatingly accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, to be sure that some sins can successfully, at least for a time, be held secret to the people who are around the sinner. But they are, in fact, always in the open before an all-seeing and an all-knowing God. And if the conscience isn't damaged, and if the conscience isn't seared like a steak in a fry pan on your stove so it doesn't work anymore, then the conscience points out secret sin to the person who sins it. Some people say, well, our consciences are shaped by our upbringing. Our consciences are shaped by our society. Our, well, there's some truth in that, but the fact is that a healthy conscience that isn't seared trumps no pun intended, trumps environmental, societal, taught values. There was a missionary to northern Brazil, and he worked with tribal people, and he observed one night a very nervous and fidgety native with sweat on his brow enter the village and seemed very uneasy even to be in the presence of his dear friends. Later, the missionary learned that this young man had just killed a man of another tribe. 
And although this in his society was not considered wrong to kill a member of another tribe, this young man was obviously under the pressure of a guilty conscience. Because when our conscience is functioning as God intends it to function, we know right from wrong, even if the law of a land doesn't distinguish it to be wrong. Legalized abortion is a sad case in point. When legislators say it's okay, but birth mothers and birth fathers, when you sit them down and you pray for them and you show them a sonogram and they say, this is wrong. Praise the Lord for ministries like the Bahamas Godparent Ministry and others who are helping counsel people in troubled pregnancies to give life to their babies, adoption perhaps. So if you would be here this morning without Jesus Christ as your Savior, let your conscience given to you by God show you you need Christ. Run to the burned off spot. We come to the communion table. The best thing you could do would be to bow your knee to the Christ who's the person who work behind this table and receive salvation. Let the elements pass you by while you're doing business with God. Take communion next month. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, come to these elements with great thanks that we've been provided a burned-off spot and we've run to it and we're spared from God's future wrath. What have we seen this morning? We've seen God's judgment, three things about it, three principles. God's judgment is based on facts. God's judgment is according to deeds. And God's judgment is impartial. I want to close with two scriptures and then we'll pray. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, that is God the Father, made him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Never get over that. Second, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Never get over that either. What a huge relief to be out from underneath God's condemnation and judgment. Let's live thank you kind of lives back to him all the days of our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your great love you obeyed the Father and you came to die in our places. And how grateful we are, Lord Jesus, that your blood, your perfect blood, your atoning blood has washed us clean, is washing us clean, and will forever wash us clean who know and trust you. Lord, I pray that we would not be moralists that are hypocrites. But Lord, help us to live a thank you kind of life back to you and get the word out that Jesus loves and has died for sinners and made a way for them back to God and into heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus, your name's sake, amen.